I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to our broadcast Adam Gentleson. He, of course, is the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Senate Majority Leader and Minority Leader Harry Reid. And he's writing a book about the U.S. Senate and the filibuster for which we will interview him on television in the not-too-distant future. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Alexander. It's great to be here. Adam, you authored an op-ed in the New York Times just as we are speaking today. Democrats need a plan fast in responding to what is sure to be Trump's nomination of an extremist to succeed Justice Ginsburg. Let me ask you just from the outset of the optics of messaging, um, especially as someone who was in the Senate when there were successful management of Democratic nominees, is it important that Senator Schumer, Leader Schumer, deploy some of the best and brightest of his coalition to make the case? Yeah, I think that's. I think that is a really good point, and I think that is important. Um, uh, you know. Senator Schumer is the leader of the Democrats. Um, he will be the chief strategist uh, deciding how Democrats approach this issue. Um, but the Democratic caucus is full of extremely effective messengers um, and a range of different types of faces. And I think that it is wise to uh, deploy as diverse an array of uh, those types of messengers as possible. Um, and I think what what a good leader does, and I think Senator Schumer is entirely capable of this, is not putting yourself out there. You know, Senate leader is an interesting job. It often is not the job that goes to the person who's the best public face. And that's not meant as a criticism of Senator Schumer. It's just that the, the skill set that that job um, that the people have who are successful at that job is more of an insider game. Um, and I think that part of that insider strategy is about deploying your caucus as effectively as possible and giving others a platform to speak and to drive a message. And this is exactly the type of issue where a good leader would deploy uh, other folks out front as much as possible. You are not conceding your office or resigning your post to have Senator Duckworth, for instance, alongside younger voices like Senator Murphy or Senator Schatz, be the team that opposes um, this nominee. And we'll recall that I don't remember Ted Kennedy being the majority leader uh, at the time of the Bork nomination. And yet he is remembered more than anyone else for undoing that nomination um, and I, I just think it's vitally important, and I'm encouraged to hear you say, Adam, that it is completely consistent with your leadership of the Democratic Party to deploy a particular representative or a set of representatives to be the messaging leads on this. And what was heartening was to see Senator Schumer alongside AOC uh, just this past 24 hours making the case to protect the Affordable Care Act and to protect this vacancy. Now, how much of the thrust of the Democratic messaging ought to be focused on the preservation of the ACA? 
Oh, I think an enormous amount. I think, you know, this whole fight, you know, just determining how it, how it, what the result of this fight will be, um, you know, is basically a question of will it go the way the fight over repealing Obamacare went in 2017, or will it go the way the fight over confirming Kavanaugh went in 2018? The reason I use those two examples is they're both examples of times when McConnell only needed to secure a majority of 50 or 51 votes um, to secure his desired goal. And uh, obviously, Kavanaugh was confirmed. He did get the votes he needed there, but the ACA was not repealed and he didn't get the votes he needed there. So I think, um, you know, what that suggests in part is that the message that Republicans are trying to take away your health care is extremely effective and is so effective that it even makes Republicans go a little weak in the knees. Um, I think that this issue in and of itself is extremely motivating to Democrats. I think uh, historically the courts have tended to motivate Republican voters more than Democrats, but I, I do think we're gonna see that change with this fight. And the fact that it is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg who is being replaced, someone of her iconic status has something to do with that extra motivation that it's gonna provide, but also the fact that that the ACA stands a very, very good chance of being undone immediately um, if, if Trump is allowed to fill his seat will also have an enormous impact on motivating Democratic voters. So I do think it is very important to make that a central focus of Democrats' messaging here. And it is likely that the judge from Florida and Indiana, the uh, two judges who were most under scrutiny by the Trump White House, um, Barrett or Lagoa, will be the nominee. Based on my correspondence with Adam Liptak and my own review, they don't have expressed opinions, judgments against the ACA. Um, two areas in which they are particularly vulnerable um, and inconsistent with the majority of the American people are on religion and questions of church and state and voting rights and questions of the preservation of the franchise. Simply stated, Adam, Barrett does not believe in separation of church and state. And Lagoa does not believe in voting rights. And I'm wondering if you have confidence that not just the folks like Brian Fallon and yourself are going to express those sentiments and those facts, but that the Democrats themselves, the representatives like Schumer and Duckworth and AOC, are going to zero in on that because they're not going to win alone on ACA, are they? No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, you you mentioned uh, Ted Kennedy and Robert Bork earlier in this conversation, and I I, I think of that speech as you as you as you talk about this, because, you know, Kennedy's uh, speech against Bork that was especially devastating was not focused on just one issue. You know, he painted a picture of Robert Bork's America. Um, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the speech in front of me, but, it, you know, it was an America where, um, you know, abortions are denied, where um, it, one of the issues he cited was, was people being uh, denied uh, due process and voting rights. And so I think, um, having, you know, painting a full picture here is the most effective way to approach the issue because 
uh, you know, it's not just going to be that they uh, take away your health care, although they will do that. And it's not just going to be that they roll back voting rights for millions of Americans, although they will also do that. And it's not just going to be that they likely make abortion illegal or at least inaccessible for most women, although they will also probably do that. It's that they're going to do all of these things together, and that is going to fundamentally change America as we know it uh, and roll back rights um, and health care and you know, basically standard of living uh, for millions and millions of people. Adam, there is a way to make the argument about these two women that they are perhaps perfectly amiable and and uh, in contrast to Kavanaugh and his performance at the hearing and his general demeanor, which was unprofessional, uh, but that being ostensibly a kind person is not enough for this job. And I'm wondering how you anticipate the Democrats grappling with one of these two women um, who will likely be the nominee uh, when you know, there, there was an antagonism, an antipathy towards someone like Bork. And then that was, that was successful. It was unsuccessful ultimately towards Thomas and, and towards Kavanaugh, which was, I would say, even more personal than, than Thomas or, or Bork before him. So how do you manage the, the attack uh, in a way that is not, going to, uh, is not going to lead your public opinion to suffer if you're the Democrats? Yeah, and that's a real threat. I mean, uh, you look at the uh, fight over the confirmation of Justice Samuel Alito, and uh, there was a sense then that that the attacks backfired. Um, you know, there was a, there was a uh, one of his confirmation hearings. Um, his family came, and uh, his wife began crying at one point, and that was played uh, on an endless loop, and it 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 ended up generating sympathy for him. So I think there is real potential for backfire if you go too hard against um, a nominee who is perceived sympathetically. I think there are two things working in Democrats' favor here, though. One is that, you know, no matter how personally appealing this nominee will be, and I, and I do think there are some, some limits to how, how appealing they will come across, given uh, what you've already mentioned about their being out of step with some pretty core American values to begin with, um, which will definitely be a part of their introduction to the public whenever they're nominated. So you've already got that going against them. Um, and then the other thing, the other major factor going against the nominee and for Democrats is that they're going to be Trump's nominee. And a cardinal rule of Trump's administration so far has been that when he touches something, it gets immediately polarized and ends up being unpopular. Um, you know, we, we live in a polarized country. That's, that's sort of an article of faith at this point. But, but when it comes to Trump, it's more of a, you know, 55-45 polarization or even a 60-40 polarization sometimes where um, his side is rapidly in support of whatever the issue happens to be or the nominee in this case. And then the liberal side is rapidly against and the swing voters usually end up siding with 
with the liberal side. So not, not by enormous margins, and that's what keeps things tense and what keeps folks like me on the edge of our seats all the way to November. Um, but but you know usually they they do end up siding against Trump by a by a not large but but a meaningful margin. Um, so I think that's probably what you're going to see here. That the initial polls um, obviously don't don't uh, judge the nominee because we don't know who it is yet, but they do show that people are largely siding against the idea of Trump nominating anybody before the election. Um, so you're starting out in a hole if you're Trump and his nominee. Um, and yet the American public supported President Obama and his selection of Merrick Garland and his wanting to proceed with that nomination in, in at least some of the public opinion. Um, and it wasn't demanded. And it will be interesting to see if the American people are dragged along here. Um, but given the climate of protest in this country at this moment in this pandemic, I don't think they'll be dragged along, at least not dragged along without a lot of kicking and screaming and civil disobedience. As just an addendum to that, the question as to whether Republican hypocrisy or the ACA is enough, you're basically asserting that that's not enough. They're going to have to roll their sleeves up and go deeper than pointing out the hypocrisy and identifying ACA as a, a threat, which has been under constant threat these last four years. That's right. I think, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear to your listeners that, that I, I don't, that I think it is going to be a very uphill battle to block this nominee because I think that nothing is more important to McConnell and his legacy um, than confirming judges and obviously Supreme Court judges at the top of that hierarchy. So I think that he will do everything he can to get the votes. Um, I do think that you are dealing here with very, very narrow margins of, you know, a vote or two deciding the fate of this nominee. So anytime you have margins that slim in the Senate, uh, bringing in all the pressure you can to bear in a focused uh, and intelligent way could yield you the results that you're looking for. Uh, so I do think, you know, having a diversity of messengers, um, focusing on issues that have proven to be successful for Democrats in the past, like the ACA, but also voting rights, um, and then painting this larger picture of what life will be like uh, under this Trump court um, is essential. Uh, but it's an uphill battle. And I think, you know, I, I wrote about this a little bit today. You know, I, I think that Democrats, in addition to focusing all the efforts they can on this fight that's right in front of them, they also need to start thinking about what they're going to, what they will commit to doing to undo the damage if they win. Um, obviously, that's a big if. Uh, and that is not to say that they should take any energy away from the fight that's currently in front of them. Well, but, let's talk about that. How, how sure. explicit do you think Biden and Schumer and company have to be when Senator Schumer says everything is on the table if this confirmation, it's not clear if he means if it is up for debate or if it is it goes through, but if and when is it necessary for the Democrats to put their poker chips on the table and say very directly that if you hold a hearing, not even necessarily a vote, we are going to expand the court. When does that need to be said by Biden and leading Democrats? Well, I think it's, I think it's okay for Biden and Schumer to have slightly different messages here. I think by, I am personally, um, I do not, you know, Biden likes to talk about 
there being a bipartisan epiphany and Republicans, uh, you know, changing their ways after he wins and suddenly working with Democrats. I think that is not going to happen. I think that's uh, defies everything that we know about the way politics works today. But I think it's fine for Biden to say that for now. Um, it, it is an appealing thought and elections are in part about giving people hope. Um, and, and I have no doubt that he will, that he means it uh, and that he will at least try it. Um, so I think the question is what happens when it, when he tries it and it fails. And that's, that's a different question. Um, for Schumer and, and the Democrats in the Senate, I think, um, being as specific as you are able to do with credibility is the key. And that's hard because, you know, I worked for Senator Reid when uh, Democrats went nuclear in 2013 uh, to lower the threshold for confirming lots of types of nominees. Um, and you could threaten to do it, but it was only credible once you truly had the votes to do it. If you threaten to do it and you don't really have the votes, then reporters are going to quickly ferret out the fact that you don't have the votes. Uh, other senators who haven't agreed to do it yet um, will probably make it known that they haven't agreed. Uh, and it just becomes very messy. So in a perfect world, all Democrats would say tomorrow, you know, if you there's a direct quid pro quo here, if you go, if you rush this nominee through, we are definitely going to expand the court. Um, but in the world of the Senate, you know, having all 47 senators that you have right now committed to doing that um, is very hard to do uh, and almost impossible. And even if you get all 47, you don't have 51 yet. So, you know, there's still the open question of will the additional senators who might be elected to give you the majority also do it? So all that is to say, a threat has to be credible. And if you don't have 51 votes in your pocket, which is the number you need to do these reforms, um, it's probably a move that would backfire if you if you try to threaten to do it. Adam, Biden is going to be asked this in the debate. So he will have to construct an answer that's not going to alienate those. And I would say now it's a majority of the Democratic voting population that want an expanded court, that want to demand a representative judiciary uh, so what do you think specifically he should say that is not going to anger the, the liberal coalition um, that is demanding reform? Um, because if he pours cold water on expansion, he's going to lose some people. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I, and you know, he, he, he seemed to do that a little bit um, today. And I, and I don't think there's anything to be gained from that. I think some construction that is, that is similar to what he's been saying on the filibuster um, and the question of whether, whether Democrats should get rid of that, which would also be necessary if you're going to do court reform. Um, a first step would have to be getting rid of the filibuster, but that's a separate story. But, but you know, what he's done on the filibuster is, is a construction that puts the onus on Republicans and says, if Republicans uh, do this, then we have to consider uh, all options and keep them on the table. So sort of an if-then construction that, that makes it contingent on bad behavior from Republicans and then says, you know, but all options on the table without necessarily committing himself to things that he, that he may not quite be ready to commit to yet. I mean, look, personally, I would love it if he came out and said that he was going to pursue court packing aggressively. Um, but I'm trying to, you know, when, when you're, doing messaging, you, you try to work with the material you have. And it's very clear that he's not personally there yet. 
Um, so the question is, what's the space he can get to that leaves options open without, as you say, pouring cold water and turning off liberals who are, who are eager to, to, to fight for him? Um, so, so I think that's a, that's a bit of a, a trickier challenge. Do you think he'll manage it successfully in this debate in, in whatever his pronouncement he makes that even if it is an even handed interpretation of the situation that, that he's not going to um, go in a direction that would offend the um, very galvanized coalition for court reform? I do. I think, I think he'll find a way to, to thread that needle um, and, you know, look, if Biden came out tomorrow and said, I'm for packing the courts, I think people would, would wonder about it because that has not been his approach and that has not been, you know, his identity. So I, I do think the speech that you reference and within the two speeches within the last 48 hours get at something which is a fundamental realization about McConnell, his anti-democratic position that he doesn't believe in a deliberative decision-making body anymore um, if he ever did and um, and the, what he referred to as the corruption of or abuse of the constitution so let's assume that the rhetoric on this remains relatively consistent which is the veiled thread if not explicit notion that if you seat this justice, uh, we're going to expand the court. You are focused very much on ending the filibuster and the steps that will be necessary procedurally, tactically, legislatively, um, that will support, once again, a democracy. And that's the question I have for you to close on, which is, are there any pivotal moments in this campaign where either nominee or potentially um, d Democratic senators um, will be key, moments that will be key to the debate that may come should the Democrats take back the Senate, retain the House and win the presidency? How are you navigating this period anticipating what those first moves should be come January or February? I think the, the, the key moments will be um, how the nominee is received. Um, and I think the best thing Democrats can do right now in, in approaching the nominee and the process ahead in order to lay the groundwork for reform in the future is to make clear that they view this process as illegitimate. And it's illegitimate because Republicans constructed a manufactured standard against President Obama and Merrick Garland to steal that seat, um, which should have been filled by Obama according to 200 years of Senate tradition and practice. And then directly violated that standard in order to jam through a second nominee. And what they've made perfectly clear is that this is just about power and what you are able to do with the power that you hold. And so Democrats have no obligation to participate in this process. And if they 
one of the things I suggest in the, in the piece is that they simply don't go to the hearings and they simply don't show up for the vote. And what that would do is it would mark this nominee as fundamentally different from every other nominee that has come through the Senate before in terms of Supreme Court nominees. Um, they would be the first, if the nominee is confirmed, they would be the first nominee to confirm, to be confirmed by a vote of 51 or 52 to zero or whatever it is. Um, if you go to the hearings, if you participate in them, even if you question them aggressively, you're gonna, it's gonna be written up and go down in history as a contentious confirmation process. And we have seen many contentious confirmation processes. That's nothing new. Um, I think what's important for them to do, and to your question about laying down markers, um, is, is to treat this as the illegitimate process that it is. Uh, and that lays the groundwork for fixing the illegitimate process when they, if and when Democrats uh, gain power. And I think one thing that's really important for, for senators to keep in mind as they go through this process is that this isn't just about partisan revenge or, or, or you know, getting, getting back what, what Republicans took away. This is about rebalancing our democracy in order for it to stay or become healthier because right now it is, it is not. Or to um, exist. And, and as a final question, just about the senators, what you've come to know, the senators who, whose minds may not be made up. Um, at the time you were serving, Romney was not a senator, but you did serve at a time when Murkowski and Collins were in the chamber, potentially, you know, the, the, even with supportive statements now, folks like Roberts and Alexander and others might consider um, not voting to confirm until a lame duck. Uh, but, but do you think that either the ACA, the hypocrisy, the voting rights or reproductive rights arguments is it really on a case-by-case -case basis what's going to work for Murkowski, what's going to work for Collins, what's going to work for uh, potentially others? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, at the end of the day, all senators want to be reelected. And that is ultimately their number one consideration. And I think Collins and Murkowski are both up for re-election and have concluded that that rushing a nominee through before the election in, in pretty stark contradiction to their approach to Garland would be bad for their re-election. Um, hopefully at least a few other senators will come to that conclusion because I think the chances of ultimately blocking this nominee become greater after the election, although they still are uphill. Um, so, you know, Collins is probably simply thinking that she'd have a lot easier time voting for this nominee if it happened after her election. And I think Murkowski is the same. So unfortunately that calculus in our polarized time doesn't apply to many other Republicans because um, most other Republicans will want to rile up their base of Trump supporters and they're running in redder states. Um, Alaska is a weird state when it comes to Senate races. It, it tends to be very red in general, but Democrats remain competitive there in Senate races. Um, so I don't know that how many other senators will come to the same calculation. But yes, ultimately what's going to drive them on this is the political consideration of, of does it help or hurt their reelection. Adam Jenelson, thank you so much for your insight today. It was great being here, Alexander. Thank you.